All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck Nicks? What the fuck Adelics? What the fuck Tuckians? What the fuckocrats? What the fucklickins? What's happening? How are you? Is everybody okay? Is there a dire tone to my voice right now? Can you hear it? Are you okay? Talk to me. Can you can you hear me? Can you can you see these? Look, how many am I holding up? Can you smell this? Can you feel me? Can you feel this? Can you feel that? Are you okay? Snap out of it. Snap out of it. Oh, I should read you that email. Yeah, let me get, hold on. Let me get you this email. Subject line, snap out of it. Mark, craziest damn thing ever. I'm not someone who talks to myself out loud ever, but I was just walking along, walking my dog, feeling miserable about everything, and I heard you say at the beginning of the Dan Levy episode, how are you doing? You doing all right? And I said out loud, and I remind you, I am not someone who speaks out loud to himself. Not good, Mark. Not good at all. And you said, and I have no idea whether you were quoting the movie Moonstruck or not, but you said it loudly and in a somewhat share-like voice, snap out of it. And I did. I laughed heartily. Anyone watching me would think I'm a truly crazy person. Thank you and have an amazing day. I will now continue my walk and continue with the episode, but I simply had to share this in the first few moments after it happened. Yours in serendipity, Nick. You're welcome, Nick. I hope you're still snapped out of it. Huh? It's easy to fall back into it. It's hard to stay snapped out of it. Am I right? God damn. Oh, there's another email. I think this is important. By the way, my guest today is a film director, usually a documentarian, but this is a feature film. Liz Garbus is here. Her film, Lost Girls, that's it. It's streaming on Netflix. She's also directed a lot of documentaries, but she's uh, she's the person I talked to today. Also, Andy Kindler. I'm not saying the shorty is back, but the shorty uh, might pop up every once in a while now that we're doing interviews in a different way. Also, I want to give you a heads up about uh, the cat mugs, the Brian Jones mugs. Right now, I can't give uh, the cat mugs to any guests because not many guests are joining me here in the garage. But you can get your own ceramic cat mug right now and act like you've been here to the garage. These are handmade by Brian Jones, my guy, my potter guy, my potter pal. And he's donating a percentage of the sales to the Connecticut Food Bank. Go to brianrjones.com slash shop starting at noon Eastern today. Get a mug. Here's another email. Please do the USPS a solid. And this is from a postal guy. Mark, I deliver mail and I've always been happy to greet my customers and hand them their mail when they come out to see me. However, due to the current situation, I'm wondering if you can help provide a public service announcement, which is please let your mail carrier put the mail in the damn box. We realize that you miss physical and personal interaction, but we deliver to hundreds of houses, businesses, and apartments each day. Please help us keep all of our customers safe by not coming out of your house and taking the mail from our hands. I deliver in Texas, where not everybody is taking this pandemic seriously. If you can help get the word out, maybe I won't have to become a human billboard and wear a sign telling people to keep six feet away from me. Thanks a lot, and I'm glad I got to see you on your tour stop in Dallas last year before the world comes to an end. Stay safe, Joran. All right, you heard the guy. All right? Say hi to your mail carriers from a distance, but let let them put the mail in the box. 
So, folks, as a general warning, in a general way, uh, and I don't even know what it means, but uh, understand that angry, desperate people uh, are vulnerable to being told what to do with that anger, and it might not be good. And a few things on the list of things that angry, vulnerable, desperate people uh, aren't quite capable of is uh, perhaps empathy, thinking of others, and um, tolerance. Just a general heads up, and I'm not talking about any type of person. I'm just talking about if there's a way that you can reach out, provide a little something, a little support to people who are desperate, angry, and vulnerable, that would be a good thing. That'd be a mitzvah. It would help you and them. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know if it's with money, with a hello, anything. Because it's going to get bad. And more people are going to get sick. And uh, that's what's really happening. Look, and I know there's a struggle between our cognitive selves and this dissonance. You know, there's a whole other narrative being pummeled into our brains. And we want it to be true. But I don't believe it's true yet. We're not good. It might not ever be as good as it was. But I, one thing I can tell you for sure is we are not good. And there's some movement on the side of the people in control of some people's minds saying like, it's all right. We're going to take a hit. But if it's lucky, it won't be you. Now get back to it. But we're not good. So enjoy some movies. Try to stay in the present. We'll ride this out. You all right? Snap out of it. Also, that's another thing that's interesting about this time is that nothing is going to be the same if and when we get out of this. So even though we're compromised, there is a sort of intimacy to what's happening in most people's lives. You know, lock in, get deep, feel it, understand who you are to yourself and to the people that are important to you. Get the love, man. Tap into the love. So here's what I've been doing. Movies. Here's the movies I've been watching. I watched, obviously, I watched Lost Girls. My guest today directed it. I watched In a Lonely Place. It's an old Nick Ray film uh, with Gloria Graham and Humphrey Bogart. Tremendous. Uh, Lynn dragged me into the 1970s Private Eye movie hole with uh, Night Moves starring Gene Hackman and Drowning Pool starring... uh, Paul Newman, neither one of those films had I heard of or seen. Both had their high points. Those leading men, specifically, great. Um, Melanie Griffith, oddly, in both of them as well, as a teenager almost, I believe. The Assistant I watched with that, uh, is her name Julia Gardner from Ozark? Great actress. A really powerful little film, The Assistant, new film takes place in an office of sort of a fictionalized uh, Harvey Weinstein character. But it's all on on Julia, and she's tremendous. I watched uh, Tony Erdman, which is a film I wanted to see in New York, a German film, which I, I could not see because it was always sold out back when it came out. Finally got to watch that. Long film, weird film, great film, Tony Erdman. Watched Ace in the Hole for the upteenth time with Kirk Douglas, Billy Wilder film, tremendous, dark Interesting, always relevant. Ace in the hole. And Ride with the Devil, a very odd 
interesting approach to a Civil War movie directed by uh, Ang Lee with Jeffrey Wright and uh, Skeet Ulrich and Tobey Maguire and Ju- and and Jewel. Uh, never heard of it. Lynn turned me on to that movie too. It didn't. It got buried by uh, the studio because they didn't know how to sell it because it was about basically Confederate soldiers, one of whom was black. Interesting. And that person was Jeffrey Wright, who I talked to, and I wanted to watch it before I talked to him. So that's what's going on there. All those movies I can recommend. Right now I want to bring out uh, or bring on a a guest that I've had on many times before. I love the man. Uh, His debut comedy album, Hence the Humor, comes out tomorrow, May 8th. Uh, You can pre-order it today from aspecialthing.com or get it wherever you get your albums. Uh, It's about 40 years in the making, this record. And uh, I had to get Andy on to ask him, what's the backstory, Andy? But this is me talking to the uh, the always funny, uh, and uh, I, I just love the guy, Andy Kindler. Well, I'll start recording now just in case I, we say anything great. Yeah, we've already, we already got through half of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But oh, keep it fresh. Keep it fresh. Okay. How's it going over there? Do you have enough coffee? I do have coffee. I um, I know we did. I certainly hope our differences what? with dark roast and light roast won't prevent us from joining I, together. I, I, I really don't know if that's going to happen. Are you drinking a dark roast? No, I'm drinking a light roast. And I know that you... Enjoy no. PG tips. I do, but listen, I have switched to light roast, my friend. I think pri- probably because of uh, something you told me. I drink, I drink almost exclusively uh, light roast now. Right now, I happen to be drinking a dark roast because sometimes I crave the flavor of a dark roast. But I understand the nuances of the different types of flavors that happen in a light roast. I understand them. Wow, this is a different you. It used to mm-hmm. be you'd be like. Uh, do what you just give me something with your stupid <laughs> that you'd knock me across the room somehow. Now, so, no, of course, some no. some some things that are called dark roast coffee, like intelligentsia, they make a dark roast, but it's not really a dark roast. They they want to. What does that the, mean? It means it's just a, it's just their their version of a dark roast, but they don't make any roast that's like a real dark roast. All right, no, like a dark roast is when the beans are burnt and oily. Yes. Used to be called in the old days Italian roast. Right, right. Or or, or sometimes just like, oh, you, you fucked that batch up. That's, <laughs> that's burnt. I know that feeling. I used to have a per. I'm so old, I used to have a percolator. <laughs> percolator. Huh? I, I think those might come back. Why would that? Why don't you bring back the percolator? Well, my, my mom also had something in her basement, which I don't want to talk about. She had a uh, Chemex, <laughs> an old Chemex. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's the big glass thing, the bowl, the glass bowl on top of the glass ball. No, uh, no, no. That's a siphon. That's a siphon. It's oh, the glass cone. A siphon. It's the glass cone. Yeah, sure. Those are nice. I have the time I was in the that uh, I smoked pot in the basement of my house, and my father was in the kitchen, and I came back upstairs and I swore he had smelled it, but he didn't. But this is what he said to me. I get back up there and he goes, "Andy, do you think I'm an idiot?" And I was like, "Oh my god, no! You're very intelligent." Very intelligent man, very very bright. He goes because a lot of people would think I'm an idiot married to your mother all these years. Like that, he had no idea that I was smoking. 
He thought it. And Phew. so it was one of those things. He was just thinking about the misery of his life. Yes. And I, I, as we talked about before, I'm sorry to hear about your mother and your sister. I know. I can't believe. I say it like you, I just found out. I know. <laughs> this, this, I mean, I haven't checked. I haven't checked with people. Oh, but I'm I sorry. Know. I, I, I thought you knew. You didn't know? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't mean it. I, I saw it on Facebook. I want to let people know that I I I, I texted Mark forty five times. Forty five times. Maybe maybe we shouldn't bring it up. Don't bring it up. You can bring it up. Why am I telling you? You are Mister Honesty. I mean, you know what I'm saying. You're you're Mister. Well, we didn't no- have that much time, and I know you were talking about it. What was there sickness? What happened? My parents. My well, my dad died in uh, 2015, and then uh, and I used to have this joke. Where at my uh, father's funeral, my mother turned to me and she said, Andy, I have to, but you? <laughs> yeah. Which is based on a very, very old joke. So that was very, very funny until the recent tragedy. And then I just lost my mama, who was 90 with Parkinson's, and I lost my sister was a surprise. She was like 69 or something like that. Oh, wow. And she'd been sick for many, many years and nothing to do with the coronavirus. So I don't want anybody people thinking. Your mother lived till till she was ninety, huh? Ninety. That's good. And she was uh, uh, also a Quaker. She converted from Judaism to Quakerism, a very spiritual religion. Huh? What's it called when you watch yourself on your on the screen? What is that? Is that called? Uh, <laughs> I have my new expression: "Lego my ego." Yeah. So tell me about this. Uh, I can't let go of it. Tell me, tell me about this uh, this this record that's been uh, what forty years in the making. That's. I think that's probably the way. It better be good. It would... Well, you know, all of my uh, my new thing now is like all uh, everything I make podcasts. Everything's on vinyl. Yeah. I don't make anything else. A... But are you vinyl. are you are you burning this into vinyl right now? Is this going through a mastering process on an analog machine? I'm using an Edison spool for this one, <laughs> but yes, you're correct. I'm I'm burning a wax disc. Nice, and then we'll, and then you'll press it into the metal disc, where then it'll mold the vinyl. That's right. No, this is something that it took me seven years. I recorded it in 2013, Mark, and I have terrible OCD as opposed to the attractive kind. Yeah. It means I'm not able to finish projects, but I didn't know until I was 50. You met, you. I came to you when I was 50 and on Adderall and telling you about that change, but then I got on Prozac and then on OCD realized I can never finish things. I can't let them go. I can't complete is that, them. But let me ask you a question. Does that have anything to do with the amount of weed? <laughs> I think ultimately I'm in therapy as you know I'm in th- as you know I'm in therapy <laughs> and every time I go into therapy I expect her to go all right look I've overlooked it for the last couple of years with this weed thing well what's your what's your end game with this what's your end game you have OCD and ADD so you think oh maybe if I add like a little more paranoia to that and forgetting so I think I'm I think you're right on this one I don't think it's quite like a twelve-step thing, but I think the pot's in, it's nowheresville. I, I here's my this was always my issue with pot is that a lot goes on in your head and uh, and it doesn't manifest into reality. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I remember that bit that Rich Scheidner used to do. Yeah. He would go, "I'd smoke pot to think about what I wanted to do." Then I would snort coke to get excited about what I was going to do. Uh, <laughs> And then I would drink to forget about what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and then he's used to that bit about how you do uh, a cocaine, you'd be with people that you never would hang out with. Oh, oh, you kill people for a living? Oh, well, no, this, you have to do what you got to do. got to do what you got to do. <laughs> and then an hour later, I don't think, I don't know if there is a gun, but if there is a gun, I think it could be me. 
<laughs> I never heard that take on it. Oh, you kill people for a living? Hey, you got to do what you got. Hey, kiddo, that's cool. Oh, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> you were never that guy. You're never a Coke guy, right? Oh, I, oh yeah. I'm, I, I, luckily, I was unsuccessful yeah. during the 80s and not able to afford more. No, I had... I, 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 I could see it with a bit of... There were nights where I had the... Sh- underneath the shower. Yeah. And I thought my heart was going to explode. Yeah. No, I think I really... I think I really did uh, dodge a not dodge a bullet because I after a while I I didn't like the feeling. But now, is uh, how how are the uh, George Bush jokes holding up on the record? I think you'll be very happy about this. I included future jokes because I knew it would take me a long time to release it. So I have jokes like uh, these are jokes for the future. That's a nice coat, sir. Where'd you get that with Bitcoin? <laughs> so I have a few of those jokes, yeah. and I refer to President Boehner. I got that wrong. Yeah, that that was way wrong. President Biden. That, <laughs> that couldn't have been more wrong. But otherwise, it's it's actually sadly to say for me thinking I'm prolific, it's pretty evergreen. It all yeah. makes sense. Oh, it worked out. That's good. Yeah, there's no there's none of me doing uh, a four hour bit about uh, uh, the Earl. what was that thing about uh, my life according to Earl? What was the thing that? Oh read? yeah, 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 yeah. Earl? Yeah, the, the thing. I, yeah, I remember. It's a whole TV show. He had to apologize for things or something. I don't remember. Yeah, had to And when you look, when I listen back to some of the old things I made fun of on the old speech, you can't even know what was that. What is that show where where Whoopi was a cop and the other person was a priest? I don't know anything anymore. I've become old. I, I'm not up to speed. I can't remember things from three days ago. Uh, I don't really give a fuck about it. I'm surprised that I don't remember. As this conversation I'm having with you goes by, it's disappearing uh, seconds after. Yeah. So um, what's the hope for this record uh, that you sell? How many? A million? What are you, what are you projecting? No, this is it. I really don't have ambition anymore. Like I used to lie I didn't have when I was younger. I yeah. really have let go of sales because well if i didn't let go i'm not, i'd just be disappointed but i really am glad to get it out there that's the thing i feel like i can't believe how little of my own stuff is out there yeah except for like comedy central specials and things like that so i i think it's cool and i love mitch mitch mitch's album mitch all together yeah i kind of like the idea of an audio album so you know i'm not comparing myself to him but i'm still alive ladies and gentlemen yes we remember Mitch, but I think that a lot of your stuff is out there in the hearts and memories of all of us, Andy. <laughs> so, this is I. I really hope something similar to this when Susan arranges the uh, the funeral thing that you say. <laughs> and if you go long, I swear to God, what? if you go long. <laughs> Oh, because don't forget, Jeff Ross is going after you to roast Yeah, you know I'll go long, yeah. (laughs) How's Susan doing? We're doing good. You know, we're both, she's healthy, I'm healthy, we're not leaving, we're we're both OCD-ish, so we're not going to go into germy areas. I haven't been in the supermarket. How are you eating then? How Uh, how are you getting food? We have cooked. Susan has made dinners, I've made dinners. But they, what, you deliver the food? They have the, you have the food delivered? Yeah, we wipe it down, we, that part which I still don't like wiping. Yeah disinfecting yeah. food maybe i shouldn't take it out of the package <laughs> yeah there you go is this gonna really add <laughs> yeah. come on the face Mark. is gonna work good on the on the podcast <laughs> so have you talked to our, any of our friends um no and this is the thing i don't know if you realize this but i have gotten into the thing in life where i didn't call anybody and i was afraid and i would always go oh, if i call someone they're gonna think i want to get together well, what's your excuse now, Andy? They can't get together. Yeah. So I really hope that I will be contacting people. And I am starting to do it. Uh, that's the other side of having like an addiction to uh, 
social networking. Yeah. You don't keep in touch with friends. So I really, uh, that part of the quarantine, I really kind of like. What, not talking to people and not feeling pressured to see them at all? I don't know what I'm saying. It's about the, without the obligation, then you really can reach oh, out. Oh, right, that's I was right. having oh. so many excuses. So many excuses were blocking me from like, oh, they're going to want you to come right over. They don't want you to come over. They don't want to see you. So it's like the old days. I used to have fun conversations on the phone. Right. You remember those days. Yeah, no, I, I've been doing that. I've been trying to do it, but I'm surprised at how few people actually reach out to me. Um, but I'm always surprised about that. Well, people are people assume that you're that you're busy. You want you're in the category of people go, oh, he won't. What is he gonna? What do you mean? Got well, yeah, no do. one's got anything to do right now. I got on. You see the excuse? My excuse. I should be reaching out to you, and I use the excuse. Oh, Mark's too busy. He doesn't want me to say hello. It's all on oh, me. Yeah. No, I, I don't worry, my friend. I th- I'm coming around. I think people are very hung up on. You know, they're very uh, caught up in their own little thing right now. And it's a scary time. So I reach out to a few friends. I've had a few yeah. long phone conversations with people. I guess, you know, like when I really think about it, I only have a few friends anyways. And I've talked to them. So that's good. I miss the fest. And I really do. That's the one thing I do miss is I know if this goes on forever, I'll miss festivals and things like that. But a lot of the things about being around people, I don't miss. I don't miss going to a MAGA rally and having no. hateful people spit on my neck. Yeah, no, no. But, you, you know, but it's it's fun to wear the hat. <laughs> but you miss going to festivals? Yeah, because that's all I've been... The last few years, I've been... I go to Moon Tower. I go to the various Montreal and Toronto. And I really like it because you see your friends... You do get to see your friends there. Yeah, everybody all yeah. at once. What's the album called, Andy? Hence the humor. Oh. Do you thank anybody on the cover, on the back? No thanking. This is another thing that got it will never be a physical copy. I was old, I that was I was delaying it by going I want a physical copy to sign after shows. I never want to see a person after a show for the rest of my life with the hand shaking and the sniveling and the yeah. sniffing. This is sanitized. Right. No physical copy. So no, I don't thank anybody. And where do you get the thing? Well, uh, you can. Uh, it, it, it's coming out Friday, so it'll be available like on a special thing. They're the uh, record label yeah. company. But then it's uh, everywhere. Apple. Okay. Where do you like to go? I'll go yes. to the Apple. Where do you get it? Okay. Good. Yes. Good. And you can pre-buy it there now. I will. I will make sure everybody knows that, Andy. I love you very much, Mark. And I hope I haven't sounded too hungry. No. On this, but if you could also pitch my my mugs. Oh, what do you I'm got? Selling these mugs. Like if these mugs, but you put the name on afterwards. Look, you know the thing to say. What kind of hey mug? <laughs> what kind of coffee are you drinking? What's the brand? Uh, today I'm drinking. I never had. I never had L.A. Is it L.A. Mill? Oh yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. You know, I'd never tried that before. It's excellent. A Brazilian. Where'd you get that? Had it shipped from there or wherever they ship in L.A. That's pricey shit, man. But it's good, right? That's good quarantine coffee. I, okay, I'm drinking. I'm actually yeah. drinking my own brand right now, the the WTF Dark. But um, I love you too, buddy. And make sure you. I love you, brother. Let's send that recording to right Brendan now. because it's going to be better. This one was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. I love you, brother. I love you too, pal. Be good. Yeah, you too. That was Andy Kindler. Again, his uh, album, Hence the Humor. Comes out tomorrow, May 8th. You can pre-order today from a specialthing.com or get it wherever you get your albums. Now, my guest, Liz Garbus, uh, was excited to have her. Uh, I was always kind of uh, 
mildly obsessed and interested in her father, the uh, lawyer Martin Garbus, for the work he constitutional famous constitutional lawyer. But I was mostly obsessed because he represented uh, uh, Lenny Bruce at some point. Uh, but he was also involved with uh, Daniel Ellsberg. Very interesting backstory. But uh, Liz Garbus, in her own right, has directed many uh, great documentaries, one about her father and one about uh, Nina Simone that was very popular. That one was called What Happened, Miss Simone. Lost Girls is a feature scripted film. It's her first with uh, Amy Ryan, which is streaming on Netflix. And it's a powerful movie. And this is uh, my conversation with Liz Garbus. How are you, Liz? Good. Nice to meet you. I'm a fan. Well, that's nice. I'm a fan of yours as well. Do we? I don't. We've never met, right? No, but one of my closest friends and almost family members because of a convoluted story is Jesse Parrott. Oh, okay. Okay. Who you've worked with on Glow, I think. I've worked with him a few times. And um, in any case, uh, I don't but it's really nice to meet you. Nice to meet and you. And thanks for having me. Yeah. So wait, when did you go to Brown? Do you know my friend Sam Lipsight? Yes. Yeah. Brown was Sam's girlfriend forever. And then he married, the, you know, Kurtwin. But it was, uh, yeah, I know. I know Sam very well. See, I met Sam when he was dating my ex-wife's best friend. I don't know what the timeline is, but I don't know that many people from Brown. But I just talked to somebody else who went to Brown. I talked to Laura Linney yesterday and she went to Brown. She did? But I she's didn't... older. I think she's older than you. So wait, where on the Cape are you hanging out? I'm in Truro. and um. End of March, early April, I came up here with my family to escape um, the city for a little while, although I feel, yeah, tremendously guilty um, and we will be returning, but it has been nice to be have the fresh air. Oh, you th- you left to get out of New York. Yeah, we left. My kids had a school break. I was like, what are they going to do? You know, whatever. It's champagne. It was a you know champagne problems, right? Yeah. We, have, we had this option and we availed ourselves of it. Yeah. But uh, like, how do you. Like as a thinker, like, you, you know, you're a person that's done like a ton of documentaries and, you know, documentaries have a specific point of view. I mean, does your brain what's your brain doing now in light of this thing in terms of what you think is an important narrative? Do, are you thinking of any? Um, well, look, I think for me, my brain, I think probably like most people can deal with the here and now, you know, yeah. I, and this is as an individual, not as a filmmaker. As an individual, I can deal with today. Today's good. You know, today is fine. Um, I'm I'm blessed. Um, When I try to project out over time and I listen to, you know, depressing podcasts with smart people, then I start to think, then I can reel a little bit, right? Like, how does this work? I think about my children and their childhoods and, you know, and then I also can see the silver lining of that. You know, I can see the, the, you know, the look after World War One. And the, the 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 flu of nineteen eighteen, we had the Roaring Twenties. You know, after World War Two, um, we got you know we got healthcare, we got expanded. You know, there are all kinds of positive. Yeah, we, things after World War Two, we got uh, we got Levittown. We got Levittown. Well, and we did get some other things as well. Yeah. You know, we had you know increasing uh, women in the workforce. We had better healthcare. You know, and there were good things as well. Um, so I, I do try to hold on to that, but as a creator. I'm very interested in protecting democracy. <laughs> that seems to me like one of the most important things. Yeah. I, I don't think I can add much to the discourse around the science of Corona, but I think that, you know, perhaps I can inspire people to um, want to hold dear this democracy um, and protect our rights 
So in any case, those are the kinds of things I go to because um, we now have a government that reflects doesn't reflect the will of our of our people. Doesn't of a majority the, of our, our people. Our, yeah, and yeah. it's just going to continue going further down that rabbit hole. And I think you know we are not a direct democracy; we're a representative democracy, and we deserve to have those representatives reflect our points of view. Well, yeah, and I I I think it's interesting too. I watched um I watched a new film. Well, I think it is Lost Girls, the first film that you first uh, i guess um movie movie that you directed oh god you're gonna have the documentary police coming after you oh am i <laughs> well you know we think documentaries are movies i mean it depends what they are if they're feature docs and a lot of them go to theaters we think they're movies okay let me rephrase um, it i get it no no i think they're movies too uh i was just trying i i didn't i didn't know how to present that that the genre of film that that is it's a it's scripted. a it's it's scripted, right? Not fictional. Yeah. Scripted. Yeah, and you know what? You know what? Um, I often get asked that question. I'm sort of the perfect target for this particular question, or yeah. one of them. And often people say to me, "This was your first narrative film," and then I can get even more high and mighty about the fact that documentaries are narrative. Narrative means we're telling stories, and documentaries hopefully do that. Oh my god! It's essential yeah. to documentaries to have a narrative, of course, and also to uh, to end in a slightly ambiguous way. Right. To leave you uh, more confused and depressed. No, 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 no. Um, but yes, this is the first scripted film I have made. I worked on commercials and in college I made films with that, you know, but this was the first full fledged scripted movie narrative film that I directed. Yes. Well, let's, well, that's interesting to me because like, let's, let's go back then because I, I watched the last night cause I had not seen it. I, I watched, um, the doc with uh, you made with your father oh. uh, sh- shouting fire. Now I had this weird thing about your father. Cause my, my first lawyer in show business was at your father's firm. And, and Richard I Kernett. is that who it was? No, Nancy oh. Rose. Oh, okay. She was, I don't know what, you know, she wasn't a partner or anything, but she, you know, she started at Garbus. What was the name of his Garbus? Who were the other names? Garbus. And then she left with Joe DiPello. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, but like when she told me about your father, about Martin, I was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Why don't, why don't I like, but, but she's not that kind of lawyer. Your dad's not an entertainment lawyer. Your dad like was this huge uh, first amendment guy. Correct. But he's a, he's a mythic sort of lawyer who you know, argued several times in front of the Supreme Court and, you know, defended Lenny Bruce. And like, so I, I didn't know a lot about him until I, did, I was starting to do research on you. And then I watched a movie and he said a couple of things that were very interesting to me relative to your upbringing somehow. Okay. <laughs> well, there was just this weird question. Like I'm watching it and I'm like, you know, I like learning about the constitution. I like learning about the struggles around free speech and how everybody has to be defended if you want to make it really free and yada, yada. But then you asked him, uh, you know, in, in relation to uh, the Ellsberg situation, where, you know, he was hiding that, that those documents at the house or copies of them and that he could have been arrested and put in jail for whatever it was, treason or whatever, for years. And you said, uh, did you take in mind that you that we were you have a family? You know? And he said, well, yeah, but I don't I don't put those in the same like, you know, that they're two separate things. But then what he said was like, you know, I realized that I could be put in jail. And it seemed like that that his principles allowed him to say, I think that the act that was done would form some kind of bond like mm. that if he were put in jail 
that that in and of itself would create something lasting mm. enough for you as his child to to define who you were. That's how I mm. read it. No, you're absolutely right. And I had forgotten that comment. That film was from some years ago. And I think that's right. I mean, look, I think in the moment you do things because you're excited, you know, you've got these documents, it's a leak, it's the best leak going, it, it speaks to the crisis of the moment, you know, what if you had a document right now that said, Trump is holding the, you know, the the, the vaccine for Corona yeah. in his house until he can make a gajillion dollars in two years or whatever, right. you know, like whatever the scoop was that everybody wanted, you do it, right? Like you just do it. And then I think the true answer is when you do those things, as he was doing with the Pentagon Papers in Ellsberg, um, you just you just do them because that's who you are and because right. you're you're maybe in some ways narcissistic, but in other ways altruistic and committed to something larger than yourself. Right. But even but in retrospect, right. He was, you know, in, in retrospect, he was still able to frame it as he was willing to make that sacrifice because, you know, how that would be interpreted by 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 humanity or or society or his children would be you know, large enough and principled enough to make up for the fact that he's in jail or, or that or that he didn't, you know, he didn't uh, put his family first. Like, you know, he's putting mm-hmm. his country first to a certain degree, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's right. Look, if my father had gone to prison for some amount of time for, you know, for fighting that the Pentagon Papers be published in the New York Times, I would honor that, you know, if I had lost him right. for years and years. I mean, I think he, he is right. But I think you honored anyways. You just didn't need that drama. It's, it's fortunate that, <laughs> that, that we you, didn't have to have that drama. Yeah. Well, that, well, yeah. That, you know, you didn't spend a life, you know, from that age. We, we were very young with a father in prison, with your mother wondering, yeah, how are you going to make ends meet? Is there any money left from the law practice? And, you know, maybe you wouldn't have gone to Brown. Who the fuck knows what would have happened? Absolutely. You know, but then, you know, another one of my father's clients was Kathy Boudin, who was part of the Brinks robbery and, and part of the Weather Underground loosely. Right. And, you know, her son, Chester. Tessa Boudin just uh, became, what, DA of uh, Berkeley? Uh, You know, he grew up, he lost his mother to prison. She was recently released. I mean, he lost her for 30-some years. Uh, You know, I'd have to fact check that. But, you know, so certainly in that case, seeing what Tessa Boudin became, it became him someone really, you know, committed to social justice. What his mother did, she regrets. I mean, she doesn't um, defend the fact that the Brinks robbery that she was involved with, you know, ended up killing uh, black police officers, working class people, um, would, and they were involved in the struggle for black freedom. But um, in any case, you know, you can see examples where those kinds of sacrifices um, create wonderful offspring. I guess. And when did you start? Because it seems to me that, you know, your father's um, work and 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 struggle and fight for for um, I, I guess it's justice, but but for the most part constitutionality when did that start did you consciously were you aware that that had an impact on your thinking Hmm. i can't say that there's a moment yeah at some point i thought i wanted to go to law school and you know kind of do what he did and then i realized that in some ways and he actually told me that that there were very few people who could kind of end up doing what he did and especially as we were moving into the eight you know it was post reagan 90s, um, you know, he came up in the 60s, right? And it yeah. was like, it, it was a much smaller group of people doing that. And that perhaps it could be not the career that it could it would have been then. 
Right, he had already done, he was he was dug in. He he had a reputation. He was part of a. There was a small crew of them, and to enter that world as a newbie, uh, you you know, would have been difficult. Yeah, and you look at you know, of course, there are these you know criminal defense attorneys who do God's work, getting trying you know trying to work on sentences of folks on death row, or you know, I just did a film with the Innocence Project for Netflix. Like those guys, I mean, they are doing God's work. That is as a human being living your life, working those cases. I mean, that is, those guys are like saints. I mean, like they, 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 yeah. they, they're not well, extremely well paid given what the kind of options they would have with law degrees. And they are, they lose all the freaking time, you know, they just yeah. lose because the system is so stacked against them. Um, so I guess at, you know, at, at some point in the mid nineties, whenever I was kind of thinking about these things in a clear way, I decided that, um, being a storyteller was was my way through and the first film i made was a film in the prisons called the farm angola usa and that was the first that was your first documentary correct yeah how'd you start in the film business i was an intern at miramax <laughs> oh yeah did you deal with the monster so for those who don't know miramax was the harvey weinstein's company before did you deal with him company I, you know, very tangentially, I was an, I was an intern. I was like, I, they didn't even give me a chair to sit on. I was just like standing at a Xerox machine all day long. So I was so far from him. I do remember one day being called into his office yeah. um, and um, the door closing. And the only thing that I remember about that being in that office, maybe he met with interns, you know, once, maybe that was part of the company protocol. I don't know why I was in there. Yeah. But the thing that I remember that that washed over me in the biggest way was it was so quiet. Mm. The room must have been soundproof. I mean, really? it was just so quiet in there. And that's and then I kind of it was weird. I was uncomfortable. My dad was a lawyer and he knew my dad. So who knows what the dynamic in that room was, if Harvey was thinking about that at all, you know, knowing what he was getting away with. Yeah. Maybe it was irrelevant. Maybe I wasn't his, his type. But in any case, the thing that I remember was the quiet. Um but, but that was one of my first jobs. And well, it wasn't a job, it was an internship. And then I went to work for another filmmaker, uh, documentary filmmaker as his assistant, whose name is Jonathan Stack, who uh -huh. I ended up co-directing. I was his assistant and then I brought an idea and I started working on it and we ended up making the film The Farm together as co-directors. Oh. So it was through him that I had my first chance and I, I worked my way up. And that was about the prison and and uh, Angola prison, right? Yeah, that was about Ang Angola prison in Louisiana. It was a former slave plantation turned prison farm, uh, you know, after Reconstruction, and uh, it um, it really focused on people serving life or death sentences, and it, it didn't focus on questions of innocence, which I it focused on, how, you know, how do you make a life for yourself? How do you find meaning and hope and get out of Get it, you know, get up in the morning when you're living somewhere and you know you're going to be buried 10 feet from that from that spot in that prison cemetery where there's no chance of freedom. And and what does that life look like and feel like? Um, so it was not a film about judgment. It was a film about um, a world. Do you see like I'm just kind of piecing this together as we talk, because I've I've made fun of the uh, amount of documentaries available currently in, in the sense that. Like, it seems that everybody thinks they can make one. That is the easiest way to sort of get involved is to make a documentary. You can do it with your phone. You know, people think that you don't have to really be good at anything. But the truth of the matter is you do honor the type of documentary you do. You're a journalist, really. 
right? Well, that's an interesting conversation. Um, I don't think I'm a journalist precisely because of that word we, we both touched on at the beginning, which was narrative. Now, of course, there are journalists that are wonderful narrative storytellers. And, and um, so I think of myself as a nonfiction storyteller. The reason I don't think of myself as a journalist is because I've spent a lot of time with journalists. I've spent a lot of time with reporters and, mm -hmm. and they're very much beholden to, I'm going to get a comment from the other side. Um, well, if I don't have four people saying this, we can't put it in the story. Right. Documentary filmmakers, we don't have to do any of that. You know, we have a point of view on a world. And if it feels truthful to us and we feel like it is expressing something larger, doesn't matter if nobody else says that about it. You know, do we have to check our facts? Yes, but we, we as documentary filmmakers, we take the mushy messy clay of life and sculpt it into something that has a shape, a beginning, middle and end. And in doing so, you're leaving out a lot of that other clay. And right. um, I think that's a freedom that people who have the word journalist in their job title have to be uh, very careful about. Right, because you can like uh, I, I get it, because really the difference is uh, it's about point of view. Yes. Uh, so like a journalist, if they're um, doing it correctly should not have a point of view per se, a reporter. Right. And maybe that's naive, right? Like we know they do have points of view, but I mean, I don't know if you would hear somebody, I'm not comparing myself to him at all, but is Troman Capote a journalist or a nonfiction novelist? You know, I mean, I don't know. It's like, what are those distinctions? What is Hunter? I mean, I don't know. Um, I think that there are differences and I think it's important for viewers to be aware of them. I guess the, the 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 distinction that I guess I'm trying to make or that should be made is that a reporter versus a journalist is there's a dis, there's a distinction there as well. Like a reporter True. is a kind of journalist, right? But yeah. you, you know, just like a nuts and bolts reporter before they get a point of view, before they become a journalist of a certain specialty, their job is who what when where and why and and that's what that's what they give you. So Inherently, it, it means that there isn't uh, it doesn't have to be a sense of of storytelling uh, in a traditional sense, I guess. Right. Yeah. And look, there are journalists who will say here is life in a small town and they'll depict it right without getting counterexamples. I mean, that is similar to what we do. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't know why I, I just I, I don't know why I asked it, because people say that to me that I'm uh, like my responsibility as a journalist. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't really see myself <laughs> as that way. Do you know what right. I mean? That, and, and, you know, just because people glean things from what I talk about with people doesn't mean that I'm serving as a journalist or a reporter, you know? Yes. Uh, you know, it's just a weird thing that people backload onto me. But how do you, like, when, like, so you're doing film work. You're not sure that you want to do documentaries when you're working for Weinstein or you knew? No, I didn't know. I right. didn't know. I mean, I was interested in feature films too. I thought I had 20 great ideas. You know, I mean, it was, I had all of these, all of these. Right. You were going to write a script and whatever. I was writing 20, you know, lots of them. Yeah. So what was it? Was it a, a, a default to, to decide to do documentaries or what compelled you to do the one you started with? And I mean, which was obviously great. Um, what, what, why, why the decision? You know, I don't know if it's a decision so much. You know, it's like when you look at your life, are these all decisions or there maybe some people have clear oh, decision making yeah, right. moments. Sure. I feel like I'm 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 walking on a path and I'm I'm choosing the best turns as I see them. Um, but I 
I, I went to work, I got a job, you know, as an intern at Miramax and I wasn't paid and I was also doing other things. And then I, and then I got a job as an assistant to another filmmaker. And this was this guy, Jonathan Stack, and he was making documentaries. So Um, you got kind of, you were like, wow, this is cool. Basically. Yes. And then I ended up connecting through a series of strange uh, incidences with an, an inmate journalist named Wilbert Rideau. Who was an in, who wrote a, a, a magazine and a newspaper out of Angola prison in Louisiana? Now, how do you find like what what you guys are producing? You direct some, you produce some, but it seems like you have about ten documentaries going on at all times. Well, I don't not as a director. No, not right, as a director, right? Yeah, but but what um, is your, what 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 is your production house like? How do you kind of divvy that stuff up? Well. You know, as you say, there has been an explosion in the form of documentary, right? right. Like, I yeah. mean, it's just been happening and projects will come to me that I cannot direct because I'm doing something else, Yeah. but I love them and I'm too selfish to just totally give them away. So then I try to find other filmmakers who I love and maybe have a little less experience or, you know, just are out, you know, are, and bring them in and help them get that project set up and, and going. I mean, I've been doing that throughout my entire career. Um, Street Fight, which was the film about Cory Booker taking on Sharp James, his, the first kind of, you know, that was a first time filmmaker who brought some amazing material to me. And I was like, oh my God, how do we help? I want to help you make this film. So it's sort of an expansion of that. Right. Um, and my husband is a producer and he, um, so we decided this would have been a terrible idea at the beginning of our marriage. But now some years later, we decided to put our heads together and, um, you know, broaden the mission of what we do by embracing a lot of other directors, at, you know, work in, in the company. I, I guess that's like, uh, I mean, I think that's very forward thinking and also is like a, a kind of nice adaptation of the, 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 the technology definitely favors, you know, the medium that, you know, of, or the of documentary of, of making mm. Uh, in, in the sense that, like, if you got an idea or someone comes in with an idea, decide to, to kind of wrangle, I, I would imagine, to begin shooting is not like setting up a, a, a scripted feature. Indeed. But also, you know, the culture requires it. I think that it seems the reason why documentaries are popular is because people crave that that type of uh, of of conversation. I mean, I don't like if you really think about it. And this is a curious connect uh, question or observation. Like the popularity of something like the Tiger King makes makes me nauseous. And you know, I couldn't watch a half hour of it because it felt exploitive right from the beginning, and it felt that you know this was not going to be like some sort of educational or 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 sort of provocative documentary. This was a, a celebration of broken people doing shitty things. Now, maybe I'm selling it short. I don't know, but that was my impulse: was that that there's a morbid fascination that kind of coincides with the documentary boom. Is that possible? <laughs> yeah. Look, I think that. You know what? You know what is documentary? Is 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 Tiger King closer to reality television in some ways than it is to what yeah. we think of as documentary? Maybe. Um, you know. What's re- your thoughts te- on it? Well, you know, I um, aren't we here talking about some of my Netflix projects? <laughs> because yeah. I mean, I look. I think you know it was a moment in our culture where everybody was staying home. Yeah. And. Um, this was the most, you know, wild escape that captured the imagination of what is it? How many 
maybe 60 million people. There were some numbers I saw thrown around yesterday, just an enormous segment of of our population tuned into it. Um, And it provided a detour. And like you said, a look at people who were struggling and flawed. Um, Many of it, you know, in some ways they shed light on our current political system. You know, the way in which a person like that can run for you know, the emptiness of, of choices. I mean, I don't, you didn't get that far, but he, Tiger King ends up running for, I think, governor or something like this. And, um, you know, actually gets some votes, you know, it's sort of incredible. So, um, but not incredible. Yeah, but not incredible. So I think (laughs) it it touched on something and, um, I'm not sure I would call it documentary. I think one thing documentary filmmakers want to be able to do is go on to make another film. And I think that if your, your subjects are very hurt through the process of making one film, it could be hard to then get people to trust you moving forward. So that's, that's an issue. Well, let's talk about the choices you've made. What, what makes you make a choice? Like, you know, after doing, you know, the farm, you know, what were some of the choices you made? Like, you know, how do you evolve this? Is this stuff that, like we said earlier, the documentary should be somewhat challenging and ambiguous at the end. So you're, you're like, I don't know, is it or isn't it? it? Does that play into your choices? I mean, I like, you know, narrative at the end of the day for me is key. I've never wanted to make a documentary because I want, I, I want to attack this issue, right? Like that right. I don't see as my role. I see my role as telling stories of incredible people that you don't get to meet in your life, maybe, or that I don't get to meet and showing our shared humanity, even right. through okay. people that you don't shared think humanity. you identify with. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Like, even if you don't think you identify with this inmate, or, or maybe, you know, and I guess that's where it goes back to Tiger King, because I don't know that you find the shared humanity there. I think that for me, it's like you look at the stories that I've made, whether it's, you know, Bobby Fisher, the the chess champion, Nina Simone, you know, the high priestess of soul, or, you know, some folks in Angola, like we, we connect with each other in all these different ways. What was the Wanda Jean doc? And the Wanda Jean doc was, um, you know, this was, again, this was a... A, a, a lesbian woman on death row in Oklahoma who was going to be put to death for shooting her lover. And the question was, you know, in Oklahoma, clearly a jury could not find their way into any shared humanity with this woman. Um, could I? You know, the people who get sentenced to death in this country, such a small percentage of murderers, right? Of course, some huge terror act of terrorism. Okay, we see it. But just a murder, a gar- you know, there are a lot of murders and there are a lot of yeah. people who don't get the death penalty. Right. Why do some? Well, it has to do with dehumanizing them, right? And it's right. like in, in Oklahoma, that was a black lesbian who, you know, was sentenced to death for a crime that is, as far as murders go, the most basic. You shoot your lover in a fight. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of what happens a lot with murders, unfortunately. Yeah. So so it was, it, was exa- it was looking for that shared humanity there. Um, and I also worked a lot with Sheila Nevins, who ran HBO. And um, we, I know that she, that was something she wanted to do. She wanted to find a woman on death row and Sheila Evans, who ran documentaries there and is a real hero of mine. She's a hero of documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a mentor of mine. I mean, she really taught me so much. Yeah. Like what? Okay. There are a few things she said to me that Wanda Jean film uh, was the first film I made with her. And I was, stressing out about a rough cut that I had sent her that was about two some hours long. And I said, Oh, but it's just too long. It's too long. And I said, well, how long do you want it to be Sheila? And she said, well, 
it should be as long as it is good. <laughs> and you know what? That's true. It shouldn't be longer than it is good. And I was like, you know, it sounds very simple, but in fact, you need to rigorously evaluate your work. You shouldn't make it long because you think you're so freaking interesting and you want to look at your navel. You have to make sure that it's it's the right length for as for it being good and good for your audience. Right. Um and um, other things, you know, she taught me was just to be fearless, you know, put the end of the movie at the beginning, you know, see what happens. You know, all those things that you learn as you grow as a filmmaker that in the beginning you're like, what? Um, <laughs> you know, I did all those things. I learned those lessons with her and she yeah. gave me the freedom. You know, many executives will just give you notes at 320. Please trim, you know, blah, blah, blah. She talked to me about big picture ideas. Try it. Try throwing that there or try losing that person. And, you know, what, what will happen? You know, she right. really you know, she was in the sauce with me. She was, you know, and it, and it just gave me a lot of freedom and a lot of confidence. And she, I mean, I, it seems to me that if anyone deserves credit for the elevation of documentaries to, to the, to the degree that they are now and to the, to, to the expanse that they are now, it's her. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, she is the, the, she is the high, I said Nina Simone was a high priestess of soul. Sheila Nevins is the high priestess of, of documentary. Because like <laughs> HBO, like she had her own, like she ran that thing, like almost outside of HBO proper. Like this was her thing, her empire and in a way. And she gave opportunities to all these different documentarians. She figured out two things, how to get ratings for her documentaries and how to get awards for them. And those two things kept her alive. <laughs> and you know and you couldn't you needed both you know yeah where is she now uh well she left hbo and she is running her own strand of documentaries at mtv of all really? places really yeah mtv do you guys talk oh yeah yep oh. it was her birthday i we spoke recently yes yes we're, I'm, yeah. she's yeah she's my I'm, I'm a real mentor of mine now let me uh, you know, not to uh not to distract from our conversation, I'm curious as to the conversations that you're having now uh, with your father, who's, what, 85, you know, around, like, you know, obviously we talked at the beginning and, and that, you you know, the thoughts about, you know, what is important now in terms of uh, conversations is how do we protect democracy? Now, what conversations are you, are you, is, where's he at with this shit right now? That's a really good question. And um, one of the things he's talking about, which is, you know, kind of sad, is, um, you know, his free speech span stance, which is that all the bad shit, you know, he, he, he worked on protecting the Nazis right to march, right, in Skokie, Illinois, you know, a big right. ACLU case. Right. Um, and now we see speech on the Internet and... Um, you know, the whole idea around fake news and the kind of trolling. And he's he, he questions his free speech stance in the, era, wow. in the era of online propaganda and fake news. I mean, what was the story this morning about, you know, propaganda, outward state propaganda coming in towards fomenting the protesters who are walking around like idiots without masks and having the goddamn nurses come out of their job to stand up for themselves and say, stop making, you know, making my job harder, you idiots, you know, that all of that conflict is being fomented by bad actors. And, you know, when you have the internet and you have Twitter and you have this, how do you protect truth? Well, that, and, that's you know, the thing I once said about Twitter. It's like, maybe it was better when everyone didn't have a voice. 
how do you protect truth? How right. do you do it? Right. And, you know, and free speech does not do that. Right. right? Free speech says the good and the bad comes in. It allowed for Lenny Bruce. It allowed for an orderly march of the Nazi party. But in the age of the Internet, it's a whole different thing. That's right. Now, because they're protected, you, 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 they've untethered truth from any sort of precedent or barometer of what it is. So yes. now that you have people who can live in information bubbles almost on another planet, they can question anyone else's truth with, you know, what's your source? Who knows if that's true? And that's the end of it. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think about what is being taught in schools, like we need to teach. And I know I see this with my children a little bit about, you know, sourcing, like if you read something, I remember during the 2016 election, my daughter came to me and she was looking at Instagram and she said, oh, do you know that Hillary Clinton is dying from a brain tumor? She has a brain tumor. And I was like, so where did you? And I just saw how like, you know, on Instagram, which, you know, I would have just skipped over it because I could have told from the source that it was, you know, a right wing source or whatever it was. But it was right there in my daughter's Instagram feed. How did you know? Yeah. How do we litigate that? <laughs> and I don't think my father has the answers, but he's having those questions. But, you know, but the the, the yeah. problem with litigation, too, on this level is that, you know, this is an administration that that is completely engaged in constant litigation. Uh, you know, over anything, you know, for the specific reason to uh, extend uh, a time frame to, you know, to to kind of bankrupt his his enemies. I mean, that's that's his way of doing things. And that and I don't know how your father approaches, you know, the use of litigation in that way to exhaust funds and resources of, of victims. Um, but I mean, that's another uh, issue between the truth being, you, you know, nebulous and under attack is that you have over over litigation used as a weapon, which has always been there. But, you know, now it just seems to be happening on every level. Are you um, are you reengaging with him uh, as a subject? Uh, Do you think you should do that? (laughs) I think you should have him on the podcast. Um, I would. But I but I don't know the answer. I mean, it's like it, no, I'm not reengaging with him as a subject at the moment, but um, I, I am re- I'm engaging with him as an intellectual, uh, you know, someone I learned from, an intellectual mentor, and and it's interesting. And you know, these sometimes these private companies, you know, have seen like with Facebook, seen the social pressures that have forced them to do some self policing. But it's negligible, right, given how much gets out there. But they don't give um, a fuck about the truth. That's the weird thing is that you know, you've got this audience of, of, of shallow people who like I have a, a personal trainer person, a woman who's relatively intelligent, who last a couple of weeks ago said, did you hear? I read that Bill Gates might have caused the coronavirus. And right. it's like, what are you talking about? Right. Right, I mean, like, right. No, I had the same. I've had the same experience with somebody. I was just like, "Wait, really? Like, oh, you believe that? Like, whoa!" And, but that's and, what they're uh, fucking with. See, once you like untether the truth, you're dealing with people's, you know, need to believe. Right. So you know, yes. and if something seems has closure or honors honors their feelings about whatever, they'll fucking just put it in there. And it's actually much more comfortable to think, oh, Bill Gates started the coronavirus or China did this as an attack than to just think, oh, God, the world works in really shitty ways. And I'm not sure how we're going to pull out of it. You know, right. it's, or, it's or a much it's, easier narrative. 
Sure, yeah. of course, and, or it's an yeah. it's it's clearly an environmental catastrophe, and it's a it's a collapse of Healthcare government. There's a, yeah. a million different things. All right, well, we don't need to go crazy, but I, I'm very I'm I'm disheartened, but encouraged by the fact that that you and your father are having conversations, and that because I when I was watching your doc shouting uh, fire, that that it, it dawned on me like how does this apply to now where the freedom of speech is completely. Not only you know uh, in in action, but but malignant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think it's right. And that and that doc was what ten years ago. I mean, that was the beginning of WikiLeaks. Like I remember, those were just the beginning of the the the, the questions. Right. And we're in a whole different universe. And you're right; it should be updated. This is what we're, it should be updated. You know. And then I think about civil rights leaders. Martin Luther King said, "The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice." Really? Where is it? You know, and it's like, what are all these things that we believe from the 60s, the 70s, you know, like all of these things. The bending, that, that curve has been flattened. Was, uh, so we've, we've flattened no that justice. curve, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I, I think that what I notice more, and even in moments where, you know, you see people, like obviously the protests around these, these right-wing protests are, are, you know, misled people by by political forces. You, you, uh, and being financed, right, by right wing. Uh, right, they're they're today, they're, yeah. they're presented as theatrical events, but they don't know that. They they think right. uh, that you know somebody is you know they just watch your Facebook post and like oh this guy Jed is going to start a thing we got to go to the thing, so yeah. they don't realize that it's a bunch of conservative uh, think tank money or whatever it is. But um, but what I think what's missing is this. And this is the fear of what's happening now, too, with the with just quarantine and not in a, in a governmental or, or abuse of power way on the government level. But this lack of, of tangible connection between individual between people that, you know, people are so isolated in in everything they're taking in and how they're taking it in. They're almost you know more lonely with the information they have than before, that the conversation among people. Uh, in face to face, in real time, touching, holding, feeling common. What were you talking about? Uh, the common humanity, or 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 the shared humanity is 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 collapsing. So you know, it, you know, when you have like legislators who, who are able to say there are more important things than living, uh, to you know, as a defense to open up a state's economy, you know, you realize like, well, that's sort of craven, but it's it's really honest about that this this country is based on capitalism and, and many of these people one way or the other though they've been hiding it have have sought to maintain the survival of capitalism no matter what over anything uh, that's understandable but the fact that he believes that people will be like that guy's right means that there's an incredible lack of uh of 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 connection between humans right you know it sure feels that way. Um, and it, 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 I think it has so much I'm to sorry, do. I'm sorry. I don't know why. I... No, no. And no, but I'll say, I mean, just to circle back once again, I mean, I think it has so much to do with who's elected. I mean, think about Georgia, right? Stacey Abrams might have been the, the governor of Georgia, right? But because of, of, and we're seeing Brian Kemp right now saying, you know, you can safely open a tattoo parlor. How do you give a tattoo? First of all, okay. So that it's, first of all, it's the failure of the state to protect people during this downturn, right? Like, you know, I don't expect the tattoo artist to starve and die. I expect him to be able to rely on the, the, the state that he's been paying taxes to all his goddamn life to help him through, right? That's what I expect and to keep him safe. But, and you know, and of course you can't socially distance with a 
tattoo parlor and 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 there's going to be terrible effects but i go back to democracy and i go back to the fact that right now it says sort of like 60 some percent of the people want social distancing to last longer to so they can be safe and they don't have to have their their grand their grandpa die yeah, you know right, right. or their friend who has bad asthma and and but our our elections have been gerrymandered and suppressed to the fact right. Right. To the point that we don't have that we have Brian Kemp, who's who's yeah. making these crazy things that does not reflect his people, because he only needs certain people to win. You know, because because you only need certain voters. That's right. It's yeah. it's a hell of a gamble they're all making, and you know this is the fucking the fucked up thing about having such craven leadership, without any national agenda around you know kind of you know helping us understand what's happening and how to take care of ourselves is that you know now we got to sit here and watch these states who are willing to roll the dice with the the lives of their people uh how that pans out that's that's there's like okay here are the canaries in the coal mine of capitalism if the economy is going to survive we'll see how this goes you know it's a tough lesson to have to sit and watch that that we literally as people like my state happens to be a good state and they're doing everything they can and we have a decent leader but now we're like well what's going to happen with this and you know what about those poor people who are being used as 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 sort of uh, the 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 stakes of this thing, you know, this gamble. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. Right. Why is the conversation not about how do we protect our elderly and their nursing homes? Why are we not have and how do we create jobs to do so? You know, how do we create safe? Job? What's the Manhattan Project to you know getting safe tracking? You know, where what that that's the creative conversation. Right. That but we have a, a fucking a yeah. fucking president that <laughs> hired a bunch of morons so he didn't feel outgunned, and now nobody knows how to do anything. And anybody who shows up who knows how to do something, he's threatened, and it's a, it's uh, okay. That's we'll we'll yeah. make that documentary later. Um, <laughs> On it. Did you ever do Air America? My producer Brendan seems to think you were around when we were around. Were you ever? Did you ever uh, do interviews on Air America back in the day? Uh, no, I think we hit you guys up a lot for different things. Oh, um, and now I can't remember what it was. Maybe the Abu Ghraib thing, but that was but that was later. Yeah. We were already kind of washed up by then. Maybe I was. Maybe it was still running. I, that might have been it. So now the two the, the the Nina Simone documentary I I thought was amazing because I didn't know a lot about her I I uh, honestly knew nothing about her mm. and because of that you know I have this new you know beautiful creative force uh, that I can appreciate in my life but what what compelled you to do that Well and that's the best best reaction that I hear because I think now. You know, people knew Nina and they listened a little to Nina or their friends put on Nina or they put on Nina. But now you get this whole like 3D experience of like knowing her and knowing her values and knowing her sacrifices. And you bring it all to the table and you have this like such an intense react, you know, experience of listening to her. That's like was my hope for that doc. The depth. Um, just, yeah, the, who is, you know, this? Who what is behind this voice? Yeah. Um, but that project, no, it came to me one of the weird, you know, sometimes things, you know, I got a call from somebody who said, you know, we have the rights to Nina Simone, you know, do you want to, are you interested in directing this? And I said, I love her music. I don't know much about her life. Let me do a little reading. Let me see if I feel like there's a story there. Cause at the yeah. end of the day, like we said, it's narrative and you know, you can be a great artist, but have a boring life. Not often, <laughs> but right. sometimes. And, uh, but you know, lo and behold, 
that was not the problem here. You know, she had a, and, you know, and we were making the film about Nina Simone at the moment of the birth of the Black Lives Matter protest. Like it was a really rich time to be digging into her personal history. And what has been the response from like, say the, you know, if you can, if I can generalize in a non exclusionary way, the black community around that, what is the feedback? I mean, do you, the feedback I, has been really, really positive. You know, I think we, and we, I had black producer, you know, we, I had, we had a, a diverse team working yeah. on the film and Lee and Nina's daughter, Lisa was very involved in the film. So we had a lot of bona fides, you know, the, at the same moment that my film was being made, there was a Zoe Sabana film being made in which Zoe played Nina. And that, you know, made a lot of people understandably angry because the darkness of Nina's skin, her, her, you know, the blackness of her skin was very much a hurdle in her commercial uh, aspirations and uh, her feelings about herself. And, and so it felt very wrong to people in the family to have Zoe, a, you know, a, a very light skinned, classically beautiful in the white sense woman um, be playing Nina Simone. Um, You know, I think that times have changed even since I made that doc, which wasn't that long ago. Hmm. You know, if someone asked me now to direct the film, I I would, I might think differently about it. I might think that I should have a a black filmmaking partner making the film with me. I mean, I did have a black producer, but even director. Um, But at the end of the day, I think they, my team did, you know, check me and, check my whiteness whenever it needed to be. And I haven't had that criticism from the film. Now people are going to come listen to your podcast and I'm going to get hate and they'll give me the criticism and I'll, and I'll, I'll listen. Um, But, (laughs) but at the moment, at the time that it came out and, and, and uh, you know, and and I'm still getting feedback from, from people very positively about the film. So the lost girls now this, now, you know, after a lifetime, it seems though, you're not that old, but I mean, I'm doing documentary. (laughs) Thank you. A, a lifetime of doing documentaries. Why, you know, I mean, not that it's not worthy of it, but why this story? How did it, how do you make that shift? Because it's shot beautifully. The story's beautiful. But why this story and how did it evolve? Because it seems like it would have been a good documentary subject. Um, you know, I I think there's a lot of answers to that. I have always been interested in narrative filmmaking. As I told you, when I studied film, I was doing that, too. Um, I went down a path of making documentaries incredibly happily. I love making documentaries. I'm making more documentaries. Um, But, you know, it's harder for the lady filmmakers to get the uh, scripted film budgets, right? I mean, of course, that's changed over time. You said you're going out with Lynn Shelton. I don't know her her evolution, but um, I get kept kept on getting offered a lot more documentaries. I had some scripted projects I was working on, and that was um, it was a different battle. Um, and people talk about how great is it that documentary has so many female directors. I'm like, well, it's a bit of a, you know, double-edged sword because it's lower paid, right? And the budgets are smaller. So yeah, there are lots of women. What is it actually telling us? Um, so, but this film, you know, the the script came to me, as I said, I've been interested in a bunch of narrative projects. This film came to me, there had been documentaries on this mark. So I didn't feel that I, I needed to make a documentary. What I felt was that the story of Mary Gilbert, you know, this ass kicking, you know, Sally Field slash Karen Silkwood slash Aaron Brockovich heroine was a story I loved. You know, I love ass kicking strong women. Um, You know, she came from a world that would never have guessed she would be able to raise her voice and have it listened to in the way that she did. 
And, um, you know, and the story of her raising her children, that's really the backstory of, of mental illness in her family, the sacrifices she had to make as a single mother. You know, those were things that you could dramatize through the scripted form with great actors that were unavailable as a documentary filmmaker. They were way in the past. Could you have talking heads talk about it? Sure. But would you see it and feel it differently with a couple great actors? Yeah. So for me, that was um, that that was why I got behind this story. And it was the, you know, the the rock that we were able to get to the top of the, the hill. To get made. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, those the the actors like were amazing. And, you know, Amy, uh, Ryan and the older daughter, the middle daughter. Thomas and Mc- yeah, Thomas Whoa. and McKenzie is a huge talent. Yeah. What the fuck, man? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like, you know, like yeah, not even talking. And I'm like choked up. I'm like, what's happening? Forget it. I know. Shooting. I mean, it was all of us. We were just like, oh, I mean, you know, you might have seen her in Leave No Trace. And then she was in yeah. Jojo Rabbit. She's yeah. a phenomenally talented actress. We're going to be seeing a lot of her. But um, it was like, to sure. me. Well, it's interesting the way you frame the the sort of like female uh, heroine, you know, in comparison to like Aaron Brockovich or or, or Sally Field in uh, what is it, Norma Ray? But like, it's interesting because the scale of this is so different. Uh, I guess not so much than Silkwood, but like because you really like, I found myself, you know, th- through a good th- third of the movie, you know, not really liking Amy Adams' character and questioning you know, her, her, her attitude around the reality. Cause you know, initially you feel like, is she in denial? I mean, does she not take, you, you know, it's a very complicated uh, character that, that somehow or another, you, you know, you really are kind of wondering about until, until it breaks, you know, until she, yeah. you know, somehow the truth is revealed of her struggle that she's not just doing this out of shame Right. You know, uh, or, or or anger at herself. But but, you know, she was, you know, uh, the best mother she could be. You know, I think that part of the evolution of, of female roles is um, allowing women to female characters to lead movies who aren't immediately likable, you know, for sure. For them yeah. To, yeah. And I think that, you know, I really chafed at some of the, you know, notes you might get when you're making your film, making her likable or, you know, it was just not, you know, how are you supposed to be fucking likable if you're raising three kids on no money, four kids, no mental health care. Right. You have a bipolar daughter. You have somebody who uh, who's doing calls, you know, work, you know, doing sex work while putting herself through college who then goes missing and nobody gives a shit. Like, why are you supposed to be likable? You know, come on. <laughs> that's not the story. I'm not saying it to you, but I'm just saying that's the, that's what I'm, you know, that's what I was, I was working on, you know? And, yeah. and, and, and then it, it comes back to the shared humanity thing. Cause then by the end you're like, I hope you're like, I get her, you know, I yeah, get it. Of course. And, of course. Um, and that's, and that's, that was why I loved it, you know, and you're right. There's, I don't know if Norma Ray or Karen Silkwood had those likability issues. It was a different moment, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't even so much likability. I mean, I certainly like a flawed character and, and a character that I, you know, I have to kind of really reckon with. And I think she's a, a great actress, but I think exactly the feelings I was having you know, reflect my own judgment. So like it, it mm. almost does in a sense, you know, what a documentary would do. Like I found myself, the the weird thing was to be honest with you as a man, you know, when she refused to accept that her daughter, you know, uh, could possibly have done drugs. You know, I, 
I sided with the other, you know, drug-addled prostitute. I was like, mm. how, you know, I can't, you know, I, I literally said, you know, like I can't take characters that that uh, that aggressively are in denial. And it turns out that she probably wasn't a drug user, right? So, right. so like there was that moment where I prejudged based on, you know, the characterization of these type of women and, and also being someone in recovery who was mad at her in that moment for not, you know, accepting that it's possible that the, that her daughter had a drug problem. It really wasn't, and it wasn't even a hinge to the to the story. But it was like one of these things where I'm like, what a stubborn bitch that woman is, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think she would agree. She was a stubborn something. But I think that also it's like it just goes to the irrelevance of what I think the fact that people were trying to make it relevant to Sharon Shannon's disappearance, whether or not she was on drugs. Right. The woman is right. gone. She's running down the street right. in the middle of the night saying, help me. Right. This isn't about whether or not she used Coke in calls. Like it's irre- And so I think that that kind of, once you understand that you're in that position, you're like, of course it's going to make you mad or just, you know. So I think that it's like, it's, it's, it's just the fact that it's brought up to dehumanize Shannon to make her worthless. That, that's, I, I think that's right. I think, but I also think that speaks to what we were talking about earlier is that, you know, all of this kind of like rabid um, politicizing and, and this sort of like the, the, the kind of malignant fake news trip, it's all dehumanizing, you yeah. know, because in a sense, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's the same, but this like for me to kind of buy into that, to like, you know, to diminish the fact that that we lost a human being here is something that is incredibly uh, relevant to the way they're discussing this virus and the yeah. way that we have a president who's unwilling to even address the number of dead, you know, with any yeah. empathy that there's a yeah. dehumanization, you know, not let alone how immigrants are treated. It, it's it's something that is that we're being trained to do which is, you know, speaks to what you're thinking about the future and, and how, you know, totalitarianism sinks in is through. Well, yeah, it's like if you heard they say 50 people were dead in this nursing home near my house in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. And what if you split that? And you said, oh, 50 people de- dead at a, um, you know, at a high school like or an elite high school. You know, what what would that we're on a we're on a bus. On a bus, like it's it, it's just right. Like it's like somehow the fact that they're in a, it, it's really um, if young people were bearing the brunt of this, I'm so, you know, I'm I'm not wishing that, but I'm just saying the discourse might be very different from from the top, right? Yeah, but I also think that because it's a a health issue that everybody's like you know in denial, like you know, de- denial of one's mortality is like you know, front and center in everybody's kind of unconscious thing. Like nobody wants to think about that. And the idea that you can be out in the world and get something that's going to kill you, they just, people do not want to think about it. Right. Right. Hence not wearing a mask. You know, it's it's immature. It's, it's childish, but, um, but back to the movie, uh, I thought it was beautifully acted, beautifully shot. And, you know, and, and it was, and now that you're telling me, uh, you know, how you were thinking about it in terms of, of representation of women and victims and, and you know, our, our, pre, uh, our prejudgment of, of people. It's very, it's, it's, very, it's provocative. It's great. Good job. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so now what are you spending your days doing? Are you guys working, you and your husband? What's up? We are working. I mean, the beautiful thing is that um, we, I, you know, you can edit, as you know, <laughs> Yeah. from you know a closet like and so we were 
pre a little bit ahead of the curve and were able to set up all these remote edit stations. And I have a series that's finishing on HBO. Are you friendly with Patton Oswalt? Yeah, yeah. Him and I go way back. We are doing a series for HBO based on um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, his oh, wife, yeah. his, his former wife's so now deceased book. So I've been really busy finishing that series. Oh, great. Um, and um, it's been great to be able to work through this period. Oh, great. I'm really busy. And let me ask you another weird question because I've, I've been sort of mildly obsessed with. Do you remember... When you started using the word storytelling and when <laughs> and when storytellers and storytelling, it just seemed to come on the scene, you know, like all at once, like like the word authenticity, uh, you know, like there are these these sort of buzzwords like, you know, I, I can see how it's sort of replaced narrative, but like it, it's a relatively yeah. new idea to kind of start to use the word, because actors use it all the time now too. It's like, well, I see myself as a storyteller. I'm like, did you always though? You know, like when did that yeah. happen? Where did storytelling come from? It's such a good point. And, and my brain is flashing, if you're obsessed with it, my brain is flashing to some emails I got at some point or another from the Sundance Institute talking about uh, storytelling labs. Okay. I wonder if there's a genesis in uh, the Utah area from that i don't know i'm just making that up but that's the first thing i thought of i don't know but there's right that might be it but also the 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 moth and the storytelling shows like there was something you know that this like it was a mode of expression you know one like like a replacing stand-up almost in in some respect that that the storytelling performance series started that kind of integrated as well Right. No, I think that's interesting. When do you think it started? Like five, ten years ago? Yeah, it's, it's fairly recent because I'm annoyed by it. I'm not annoyed by you, but like, you, you know, it's like I'm annoyed by it in the same way that I'm annoyed by, you know, authenticity and artisanal. Yeah. People started saying on the bubble a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. That's another I don't know one. what that means. Doubling down. like was, Doubling was, down. Big. That was big. Yeah. Trump really did that. Yeah. The journalists really kind of pushed through doubling down. With with this presidency, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it, it's true. I don't know, so I won't. I'm a I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a storyteller. No, I, don't I won't mind. tell any stories. You can tell stories. <laughs> I, I, I'm just was curious if you realized that it was a newer word for you. Um, By the campfire. Oh yeah, exactly. It was great talking to you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for your service as a storyteller. <laughs> when do we start the interview? Oh, that's right. I got to we, we're going to start right now. And I'm, uh, I'm glad okay. that you, you, everybody's healthy there. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was Liz Garbus. The film, uh, again, is Lost Girls, which is streaming on Netflix. Uh, she's also the director of many documentaries, including What Happened, Miss Simone and The Fourth Estate. And also, don't forget, however you reach out, try to make it clear to the desperate, angry vulnerable people that things are not good and there's still sickness out there like all over the place okay we can't get clouded by desperation or desire for things to be okay okay all right all right keep your information clean then okay